Okay, guys, so we're on uh, page 4 to 8 on Psalm 102, 12 to 22. But you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to show favour to her. The appointed time has come. For her stones are dear to your servants, her very dust moves them to pity. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. For the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. He will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. The next reading is from Acts chapter 9, um, which is found on page 777 of your Bibles, and I'll be reading to verse 31. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Je Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. 
Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let me add my welcome. It's great uh, that you can join us this morning, whether uh, you're passing through, new visiting, it's great to have you, or whether indeed you're regular and here week in, week out, it's great that uh, you can come and join with us this day. We're picking up again in the book of Acts. We've been working our way through it. Uh, We're seeing God's amazing work uh, in the days after Jesus had risen and ascended into heaven, how he is growing his message and growing his kingdom at the very start and indeed uh, encouraging us as he keeps growing it even now and today. Uh, Why don't we pray that God might speak to us clearly. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that is powerful, lively and life-giving. Father, we ask now as we uh, spend time considering it, that you would be enabling us to see you clearly, uh, to know what you would have us do and uh, enable us to actually live it out. Father, may we take great comfort uh, in you and your character uh, and may we delight in serving you all our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Life can be pretty frustrating at times, can't it? Uh, The other week in uh, our Connect group, we were considering the frustrations of life and how uh, so many of our frustrations were caused by circumstances that are out of our control. The reality is that many of our desires are frustrated because, well, people oppose them. Uh, Neighbours decide to extend and their extra living space means shadows and a blocked view you know, a colleague's success uh, comes only because it's at your expense. Uh, there are needy people in our lives who continually demand things and they sap our time and our energy, uh, take us away from those who we actually want to spend time with. You know, life is frustrating, isn't it? Because there are, there are people with different desires to you. But generally speaking, when we know it's an, an accident, it's not intentional, we learn to deal with it. We, we, we can overlook it. What about when it's not accidental? How do you deal with those who aren't just disloyal but they actively betrayed you? You know, those who, who break your confidence to enhance their own reputation. 
you know, the colleague who, who promises that they'll support you to, you know, but tells the boss behind your back you aren't up to the job. You know, the husband who belittles his wife in public even though he promised to love her like Christ. You know, how do you deal with those who, who brutalise you? you know, maybe not physically, but, but at least verbally. Uh, who speak words that are actually designed to hurt, not accidentally. In short, how do you deal with your enemies? We'd like to think we don't have enemies. We'd all like to think, no, no. But the reality is there are people out there and we've come across them, we've experienced them, those, those whose desires don't just clash with ours, but, but they have a desire to clash with us. How do we deal with them? And more importantly, how does Christ deal with them? So we come to his word this morning and we come to learn and we come to learn with humility. Because at one time, we all stood as enemies opposing him. And Acts 9 is a, a beautiful passage. It gives us a remarkable insight into the way Jesus deals with his enemies. It transforms us and it transforms the way we can go on and do with ours. Uh, so we meet Saul and, and you've got to be in no doubt, this man is an enemy of Christ. Uh, we first met him um, a little bit before where we read in six, uh, the end of chapter 7, actually, 7.58 and following, uh, Saul is there uh, holding the coats, keeping watch as they stoned Stephen for preaching of Jesus. He was giving his seal of approval. You see, Stephen had preached that Jesus was risen and so that, the logical implication is that the old way of the temple is gone, the new way is in Jesus. Uh, Saul understood exactly what was being claimed and so he went out and his desire was to make obsolete those who worship Christ, to eradicate them, to preserve the old. And so in 8 verse 3, Paul goes around and ravages the church. He goes door to door and he drags people out, men and women alike, and he takes them off to prison for following Jesus. Uh, the language used in 8 verse 3 of the way, the, the way he ravages uh, is a word normally used about how a wild beast would act. So like in, in Psalm 80, uh, a wild boar is tearing through a vineyard, destroying uh, without kind of consideration. That's the sense of passion and obsession that Saul had with wanting to put an end to the name of Jesus. Uh, but if you're with us last week or if you want to look at 8 verse 4, it, it had the reverse effect. Um, as, he, as he went out to battle them and try and crush, them, crush the message, it actually just spread it. It went further and further. And so in 9 verse 1, we meet him again. He's still breathing out murder. Uh, and he, he was so obsessed that he, he'd organised, orchestrated permission to go and track down believers beyond Jerusalem. Uh, so he was going to head off to the north, to Damascus. You know, if there was ever an enemy of Christ, it was Saul. In 9 verse 4, Jesus interrogates him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, and at one level, um, Jesus' words are beautiful and they identify um, us, the church, Christian people with Jesus so intimately. You know, like it, he doesn't say, why are, you, why, are you why are you persecuting my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? You know, you hurt Christians, you hurt Jesus himself. But at the same time, it identifies Saul with those who put Christ to death. This line of persecution, those, these people who Stephen and Peter preached against. Jesus has enemies and Saul is Jesus' enemy. He, he's been betraying his devotion to God. He has brutalised his followers. And how does Jesus deal with his opponent, his enemy? And how is he going to reshape us? Uh, two points. One, Christ's grace overcomes his enemies. And secondly, that Christ's grace overcomes our enemies. First, that 
that his grace overcomes his enemies. So Saul wanted to destroy Christ, but Jesus confronts him and welcomes him and gives him a key role in his kingdom. Jesus overcomes him with mercy and grace. Now, it's grace because it's undeserved. You know, Saul was there ruthlessly persecuting, but Saul's problem is not that he was a grossly immoral kind of guy. In fact, he was, he was really respectable. He was an exceptionally righteous life of a man. Uh, his problem, though, was a willful ignorance of God. He knew the claim of Jesus. He lived an upright, righteous life, but he just refused to acknowledge Jesus. You know, his, his actions might have won him credit in the community. Certainly would have won him credit before the religious people, but, but he had no merit before God. He stood simply as an arrogant opponent and deserved nothing more than to be crushed. And yet it's grace. It's grace as well because not just is it undeserved, but it's entirely the work of Jesus. It's irresistible grace. In 9 verse 3, as Paul so beautifully acted out for us, he, he's stopped in his tracks by a, a blinding light. In verse 4, it's, it's Jesus who initiates the conversation. In verse 6, it's Jesus who directs the next move. Uh, Saul is, is led off blind to Damascus. Again, the, the emphasis in Saul is doing nothing. He, he can't even make his own way to Damascus. He has to be led there, taken there. Uh, in verse 10, it's Jesus who arranges for Ananias to come and be the instrument of his healing. Uh, all through the narrative, uh, all through Acts 9, Saul is just prodded and poked along. In fact, he's been silent since verse 5 when Jesus revealed himself. He doesn't even say anything. There's, a, there's no kind of testimony from Paul. He, he doesn't stand up and go, oh, you know, what joy, I've now found Jesus. You know, he doesn't stand and say, oh, I've made a, made a decision, I'm going to decide for Christ, I'm going I'm to choose Jesus, I'm going to follow after him. No, no. When Paul later on, Saul later on, account, re- reminds people of this incident in Acts 26, he gives a little more of what happened. In Acts 26, 14, he says, Saul, Saul, recounting what Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That is, Saul had been goaded again and again to start following Jesus, but he was resisting. He'd heard of Jesus plenty of times, and yet he resisted, and yet now he can resist no more. You know, he'd railed against the claims that Christ was alive, but on the Damascus road he met the risen Jesus and he could no longer resist. You know, this is grace because Saul makes no contribution. It's entirely the work of Jesus. His compelling, unavoidable work. You know, people coming to Christ is not always accompanied by joy and relief. Now, for some people it is. But for some of us it's just the sheer compulsion of no longer being able to avoid living his way. The 39 articles uh, speak of God's electing some to salvation and described it, uh, describes it as being to be called according to God's purpose by his spirit working in due season. They through grace obey the calling. They through grace obey the calling. Now that was Saul. Through grace he obeyed the calling. He didn't really want to follow Jesus. He could just do nothing else. C.S. Lewis uh, talked about his own conversion as simply accepting the inevitable. Uh, To quote from his writings, I gave in. I admitted that God was God and I knelt and prayed and perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. 
A man I know had uh, the privilege of growing up in a a Christian family, uh, but he turned his back on God. Um, Without going into details, he'd lived a a wild and wasteful life. Uh, He partied hard. Uh, He treated others selfishly. All the while, he knew that nagging thought that God was there. And then one night, it was all too much. Uh, He's told that he, he knelt beside his bed and he caved in. He could simply no longer escape Christ. And like C.S. Lewis and like Saul before him, it's Jesus who did it all. Even for these unwilling people, this is irresistible grace. He didn't want it, but grace does what's best for someone, not simply what they want. How does Jesus treat his enemy? Well, he overwhelms him with this grace. He does it all. And it's grace most of all because Jesus accepts him without reservation. Jesus didn't simply transform Saul and then kind of go, well, it's great, now you're in, in my kingdom, but I'm just going to leave you a little bit on the fringe because, quite frankly, you know, you've got a past. You know, it wasn't that kind of half-hearted forgiveness where he'd, he'd spend the rest of his life on Jesus' side, but, but all the time the, the record of his past crimes would keep being brought up. You know, just to remind him of the kind of guy he used to be. No, 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 this was a wholehearted invitation and welcome back. You know, his, his identity is radically shifted. Yeah, he'd gone from being a persecutor of the name to, in verse 16, told how he will suffer and be a sufferer for Jesus' name. You know, that is, his experience is now, his identity is now completely tied to Jesus. And so unreserved is that, that welcome that he receives, that, that Jesus is, gives this chief enemy a vital role in seeing his kingdom grow and building his church. In 9 verse 15, This man is my chosen instrument to carry, out my, carry my name, before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. He is going to do what Psalm 102 promised, where where nations would fear the Lord and and kings would would revere his glory. And so as it goes on by 9 verse 20, uh, Saul's out there preaching, preaching in Damascus, the town he'd come to try and wipe out the name of Jesus in. Uh, And then by, after he's driven out of that town, in, in 28 and 29, He's preaching there in Jerusalem with the Grecian Jews. Why does that detail matter? That was exactly what Stephen was doing when he got arrested and killed. Saul, who'd overseen Stephen's murder, is now doing exactly what he had him killed for. See, in the unfolding plan of of God, of Acts and God getting his news out to the world, God is not restricted to just using people to those who are already on board. He takes an enemy... And so gracious is he that he invites him to the very heart of his mission and unreservedly welcomes Saul in. So how does Jesus deal with this enemy? He overcomes him with grace. Saul deserved judgment, but what he gets is lavish mercy, an open invitation, a welcome back. That's got to give us confidence, hasn't it? That's got to give us confidence, first of all, for ourselves, you know, no matter what you have done, you can be welcomed back by grace. Now, Saul later wrote, on in, wrote in Colossians 1, Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. That is, we, we've all done things and said things and thought things that we'd be too ashamed to tell others. Things you just kind of keep to yourself. Things that even confessing to God is kind of painful because, quite frankly, you don't want to re-mention them and you certainly don't want to mention them to God even though you know he knows. 
perhaps even now you are wrestling with failings, even willful resistance in parts of your life. But remember this, Jesus overcomes his enemies with grace. As Colossians goes on, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. See, take confidence from how Jesus treats his enemies. No matter what you've done, you can be welcomed by grace. Have confidence as well for even your most hardened friends. So I want to ask you, of all the people you know, just imagine your mind, who is the least likely to come to Christ? Who is the least likely person, the most hardened one to hearing the message of Jesus you know? Well, no matter how hard they are, grace can overcome. Saul is an encouragement to take confidence. Uh, he later writes to his friend Timothy, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners, that doesn't mean he was bad at sinning, means he was particularly good at sinning, Um, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. See, Saul is a model for us all of Christ's mercy and patience. Uh, If God can have mercy on Saul, well, there's hope for men like C.S. Lewis and hope for my friend I mentioned. And and if Christ can overwhelm them with grace, I can keep praying for those who seem furthest off. So I have people on a a prayer list that I've had for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years of them being on my prayer list. Uh, I don't actually keep up with them. Uh, But I still pray for those people who all those years ago were very hard to Christ. I keep praying because Saul's example encourages me. That's what Scott reminded us of earlier before the Bible reading. We we don't always get to see the fruit, but someone else might get to. We're talking a lot this year about reaching three people we know for Christ. Saul's example gives us confidence to put even the most unlikely people on that list of three for prayer. I intentionally have on on my list of people, uh, I suppose I'm praying for, a mix of those who are um, close to Jesus and far off. You know, I say close to and far off. I I can't know their their hearts, so I don't know the inside. But but I can know that there's a difference between some of the people who are actually interested in hearing about Jesus and engage me in conversation and we can talk about Christianity. uh, And I know there are other people who kind of, it's borderline impossible for me to even talk about Jesus or spiritual things. And yet they're still on the list. Why? I'm not sure God will save them, but I know that he could. So Jesus has enemies. And remarkably, he chooses to overwhelm some with grace and invite them in. And that transforms the way even we treat our opponents. This is the second point, shorter point. Christ's grace overcomes our enemies. Acts 9 isn't simply about Jesus welcoming Saul. It's also about God's welcoming this chief of sinners into the fellowship of all his people. It's about his people forgiving enemies too. It touches on how grace can can overcome and overwhelm our enemies. Uh, So look at Ananias' response in 9 verse 13. He's heard about this man and he is afraid. And with good reason. Saul's got a reputation Uh, Ananias knows his violent plans, but Christ assures him in verse 16, 
He will suffer for my name. You know, and so in verse 17, Ananias' first words to Saul, he calls him brother. Grace overcomes this enemy. You know, it, it's hard to believe, even after Saul starts preaching publicly, uh, the broader church is sceptical. They're suspicious. So when he comes to Jerusalem, do they, do they roll out the red carpet and go, oh, terrific, Saul's here. You know, do they go, we should get him on the preaching circuit. You know, there's a couple of different places. Wouldn't it be great to get his testimony? No, no, no. They're actually, verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem and tried to join, they were afraid, not believing he was really a disciple. See, at first, they didn't really believe God could bring that kind of transformation about. And they feared this persecutor more than they feared Christ. Uh, this time, it's Barnabas who, who leads the way. In verse 27, he takes Saul before the others, and he points, first of all, the evidence of the, the overwhelming experience Saul had of grace on the road to Damascus. You know, he grasps what grace can do with our relationships. Grace actually enables us to overcome fear and find fellowship. Grace can overcome our enemies. Yeah, yeah, it's right. Some some hurts that people do can be overlooked. You know, don't demand an apology just because people are annoying or they accidentally slight you and you know, there's disappointment. You just kind of let that slide. It's right to overlook some damage. But sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's neither right nor possible to overlook what people have done. You know, willful betrayals and disloyalty, acts and words of brutality... You can't just overlook that. It's not right to. As someone put it, there is a a moral hindrance to fellowship. That is, it would be immoral and wrong just to pretend it didn't happen. But grace can overcome what can't be overlooked. The grace of Christ removes that barrier of moral hindrance. Because of Jesus, you know, once for all death on the cross, the the sins of all who, who trust in him are paid for. Yeah, you might still need restitution and apologies and compensation, but, but we can no longer morally hold back forgiveness to other people whom Jesus has forgiven. That, that moral hindrance to fellowship is gone. We, we don't overlook those hurts, but, but to continually live in fear or avoidance of forgiven sinners is to overlook the cross. That's what Ananias grasped. That's, that's what Barnabas grasped. That's uh, Corrie ten Boom grasped. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian. She was sent to a concentration camp for her role in harbouring Jews during World War II. She was liberated from that death camp just days after the Allies came. Uh, She would reflect and talk about, though, she was still a prisoner of her hate for many years on. Uh, She knew the gospel well. She knew that that was, you know, if Europe was going to be healed, people need to know forgiveness in Christ. She used to preach it. Uh, And one particular Sunday, speaking in Munich, Uh, A man walked up to her after the service and uh, he put out his hand and offered a greeting and he said, I'm so glad Jesus forgives us uh, all our sins as you say. And she recognised him at once. She recognised he was one of the guards at Ravensbrook. She recognised he was one of the most brutal and dehumanising guards there. And she froze and she realised she just couldn't forgive. And in that moment she prayed, Jesus, I can't forgive this man, forgive me. And Christ answered that prayer. She later wrote, For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. So isn't that the power of grace? That it can overcome 
not just our enemy status with God, but even our enemies with one another. And grace doesn't just overcome his enemies, but ours. It's what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. He tells this story of this gracious king who's cancelled a massive debt, multi-million dollar debt to a servant, and then the servant goes off and demanded a few measly dollars owed to him by a fellow servant. And Jesus finished the story. The master called the servant in, you wicked servant. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have shown mercy to your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Now, there's implications for us. You cannot remain enemies with someone Christ has forgiven. Grace doesn't allow it. Yeah, there's nothing sadder than, than Christians who deny full fellowship to each other because they withhold forgiveness at some level from a fellow Christian. I've heard of people refusing to be in Bible studies with others in the church. Now, I've seen uh, uh, fellow you know, believers unwilling to sit in the same part of church as someone else or be at the same event. And that hanging on to, to fear and grudges is actually a denial of grace. It's a denial of what Jesus has done. Now, maybe that some of us here, grasping grace and how we have been forgiven before Jesus, need to go and restore some relationships with others and forgive them. Because if our, if our welcome of enemies forgiven in Jesus is any less than Christ's welcome, we've, we've misunderstood that we are debtors to grace. So how do we deal with our enemies? The way Jesus did. Overcoming them with his grace. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the grace that you've shown to us, the mercy we don't deserve. We thank you that you see us enemies like Saul and yet lavish mercy. We thank you for the encouragement and example of Saul uh, that you could take him and welcome him so thoroughly and transform his life. And we pray that you would be transforming those we know, those who are most hardened. Father, help us to be people so gripped by your grace that we can pass it on to others. May there be no barriers in our fellowship with fellow Christians, even those who've hurt us, even those who've hurt us on purpose. Father, may forgiveness and grace reign here, we pray. Amen. We're going to keep praying. There are words of... The general thanksgiving on the screen. It seems appropriate, speaking of the grace of Christ, to pray this together and then Jason's going to lead us in further prayer. So let's pray. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all men. We bless you for our creation, preservation and all the blessings of this life but above all for your amazing love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we pray, give us that due sense of all your mercies, that our hearts may be truly thankful and that we may declare your praise not only with our lips but in our lives by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days, through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honour and glory, now and forever. Amen.